this is the beginning of Holy Week. Now, I didn't grow up in a very liturgical church. I grew up in church. And there are certain things that I, I knew were important. You know, as a kid, I knew that uh, Christmas, of course, was a big thing. I loved the tree and the trappings and the toys and Santa and all this stuff. But still, I knew, I wasn't an idiot. I knew that it was all about Jesus' birth. And, wow, you know, God actually became a man and he was born of a virgin and, and he was born of the woman that he created. You know, it just blows your mind. Wow, wow. Christmas was important. I knew with Holy Week, Good Friday, it's coming up this Friday, that was huge. You'd go to church. Biggest thing on my mind was going to church in the middle of the week. I thought that was kind of unique. But you'd go there, and it was solemn and quiet, and you'd see the cross, and you'd listen to the message, and you're reminded that I had an appointment with that cross, and Jesus took my place. I mean, Good Friday is pretty important. I knew that. And then you'd come back the next Sunday, and it was Easter, right? It was the big kahuna. It was the Super Bowl of Christian holidays. And he rose from the, the grave, proving that the death he died for me, God the Father accepted that payment. That was good news. And uh, he was uh, brought immortality to all of those who follow him. I mean, this is heaven wins, hell loses, Easter's a big deal. But, but the fourth most significant event, they tell us, in Jesus' life, is the triumphal entry. It's the beginning. It's what's celebrated today, the beginning of, of Holy Week. And try as I might as a little kid, I'm not sure I understood what it was all about. I, we come to church and they give me the little palm things, you know, and, and wave it, you know, wave it. Okay, don't wave it anymore. Quit waving it. Okay, put it down. Wave it again. And they touch the donkey on the felt thing of Jesus coming in on the donkey. Oh, that was kind of nice. And lots of songs, singing Hosanna all over the place. Uh, that was great. But still, other than the fact that Good, you know, Palm Sunday let us know that next Sunday was Easter. I'm really not sure what, what significance it, it brought. I mean, if you don't have Christmas, if you don't have Jesus dying for you Good Friday, if you don't have him rising from the dead, let's face it, we're, we're all done, right? It's over. But the triumphal entry, I mean, do you really need that one? If, if you don't have it, is your faith really lessened at all? I mean, really. I mean, we celebrate that he came to town. You know, okay, yay, good, let's move on. I didn't understand the significance, and I, I don't think I'm alone. Maybe you're in that same boat. Yay, Palm Sunday, but what does it mean other than the fact that we got Easter next week? What we want to do this morning is we want to focus on this passage that, by the way, all four gospel writers talk about the triumphal entry only two of them talk about the birth of Jesus. So, I mean, this is a big deal in, in God's mind. And so we want to focus, and I believe like the rest of God's word, if we focus on it and we say, Lord, would you teach me? Would you show me? I think it have, can have the power to transform. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 12. I'll look at John chapter 12. And you'll need your Bibles this morning because some of the, the key texts, we don't have it up on the screen. And so there's a pew rack in front of you with a Bible or on your device. Feel free to pull it out. Just don't go shopping at Amazon or checking your Facebook. That's okay. Um, John chapter 12. And while you're turning or moving your device to get to there, let me give you a little background because the background is going to tell it all what's going on here. John chapter 12. Jesus had been ministering for about three years, right? Uh, Jesus had been uh, feeding hungry people. And now, if you were fed by Jesus in our culture, it's like, oh, that's nice, it's wonderful. You know, we, we go to enough graduation parties and everything else where we, we pig out, and that, that's a nice thing. 
But keep in mind these guys. These guys lived from meal to meal. It was normal to go to bed hungry. It was normal to go through a day sometimes with nothing to eat. They literally ate so that they could make enough money so they can buy food so they could eat again so they could get enough this was this was life was survival was was the meal meal was everything there weren't a lot of pantries and refrigerators and and that was normal so when jesus shows up and he feeds the masses with a all you can eat fish and bread buffet probably not too many of the folk that day had ever been in a situation where they could eat all they wanted and jesus bestows that on them what are they thinking who is this guy I mean, you follow Jesus around and you don't need anything else. He's it. He's all you need. That's right. And Jesus in those three years would liberate sick people, right? People who are diseased and blind and lame and, and crippled. Uh, Jesus would, would, would heal them. Now, that's great in and of itself, right? Especially if you're sick. But keep in mind, at this time, if you're sick, that was kind of like a sign of God's judgment. You know, you've probably done something to deserve it. So there wasn't a whole lot of, of, of sympathy. There wasn't a lot of social programs to take care of you. And so when Jesus comes to these folk who are second-class citizens at best and heals them, restores them to all of life, I mean, my goodness. Jesus liberated the demoniacs, right? Now, if you think that it was under God's judgment, it was a bad rap to have be sick, what do you think it was to be demon possessed? You know, I mean, we're talking. This was this guy was not just hell going to hell in a handbasket. He was hell in a handbasket. I mean, this was a bad, bad thing, and yet Jesus liberated these folk. I mean, it was this hopeless situation. Gave them back full life, and Jesus would liberate the the spiritually abused. And there were a lot of them. Just look at there are a lot of them today. Maybe you've got a spiritual abuse story, where the leaders had turned following God into such a complex. Mass. I mean, they took those 643 laws in the Old Testament and they went and they built from them on, on their own. It's called the Talmud. They built from them myriads and myriads of other laws. And so there were, by the time the, the, the Jewish leaders got done, there were thousands and thousands. Poor rank and file folk couldn't keep them all straight. You had to be a professional religious person to keep them straight. And so these guys felt like they were second-class citizens. And these guys, the religious leaders, reminded them that, in fact, they were. Jesus comes to these guys and says, Blessed are you who are poor, who, who mourn. And Jesus says that, that your righteousness has to surpass these guys. I'm giving it. He gives them hope. gives them forgiveness. You can imagine that the peasant common folk are loving Jesus by the time we get to John 12. Majorly so. And of course, they're asking the key question that we'll know from our reading in the Old Testament where the promise is that there's going to be a Messiah. They're asking, is this him? Is this the, the Messiah? Wow, wow. Now, you need to know too, by the time you get to John 12, that as much as the common folk loved Jesus, the religious leaders hated Jesus, right? Uh, now, uh, Rome kind of was in charge. Last week, remember, Joshua kind of was taking the land? Well, by this time, Jesus' time, Rome is over the land. They're in charge of it. There's a bunch of Jewish folk in there, but Rome's in charge. And they've got thousands of, of guards in Jerusalem, and they've got a governor that Caesar himself appointed for Jerusalem. And if that governor can't keep peace, Caesar would put one there who could. And so the uh, governor had to kind of work with the Jews. In our understanding from Roman history, 
the only people group, the only conquered foe that they allowed to partially self-rule themselves were the Jews. And so in Jerusalem, you had this, their senate, the Sanhedrin, and it had the conservative folk on your right and the liberal folk on your left. Uh, You had um, Pharisees and you had Sadducees, and they made up this senate. And these guys had religious power, but they had political power. They had their own police force. They had a lot of say in what transpired. And if they, as a group, went to the governor then the governor better hop because, again, if they threaten a riot, the governor's going to lose his job. And so there's this tension all the time. Well, when Jesus came on the scene, the religious leaders reached out to him because he'd be a nice guy to have on your team, right? He does all these miracles. He's a nice man. He'd be a great guy. You didn't want to be on his team, but he'd be nice to have on your team. And the religious leaders were, were reaching out to Jesus, but Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus would use the religious leaders as negative examples in his preaching. Jesus would confront the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and publicly in front of everybody and humiliate these guys. Uh, these, these guys were uh, tired of losing battles to Jesus with their debates and and constantly looking like fools in front of Jesus. And so you can imagine all of these common people are loving Jesus. And these highfalutin folk who've always made them feel bad, Jesus is putting them in their place. And so you got Jesus and thousands of people behind him kind of staring down at the Sanhedrin. They're kind of like, yeah, what he said. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, deal with that, buddy. Let's see what you do. And so the Sanhedrin's losing power. And popularity, the people used to fear them. People don't fear them anymore. And so they're kind of, kind of bent out of shape. They're, they're upset. Matter of fact, in uh, uh, John 11, we see, we see this. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple courts and they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. So there's, they've got this, this powder keg thing going on. They've got the, 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 the Jewish authorities have got a contract out on Jesus. Now, what? before we get to 12, we mention one more thing. Because there's this tension. These guys really, really, really hate him. They think he's a, a, a demon. These guys over here, the common people think that he's the deliverer. These guys think that he's a threat. The common people think that he's their hope. You know, there's just this tension going on. In chapter 11, just a couple of days before this, Jesus kind of lights the fuse for the powder keg. Because the timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing. Very publicly, in front of lots of people, he raises a man from the dead. And it's one of the few times when he does this kind of thing, he doesn't pull aside people and say, don't tell anybody. He lets them tell. And let me say, back up and say this too. Because going on in Jerusalem right now is the highest, holiest day of, of Israel, the Jewish people. It is the Passover. You've got people coming in from Europe. You've got people coming in from North Africa. You've got people coming in from Asia. They're all kind of just coming upon Jerusalem. Matter of fact, uh, Josephus, Roman historian, not a Christian, says that 2.7 million people 
which is an astronomical figure considering how big Jerusalem is, are packing into Jerusalem at this time. I mean, it's just, they're just on top, you almost have to like vaseline your body, you know, to slide into Jerusalem and do what you need to do to slide out. It's just that, that packed out. And then Jesus, while this is going on, all these people are coming in and they're all talking about Jesus because he's healed and he's fed and he's done all these things. Then, two, two miles out, the suburbs of Jerusalem, Bethany, he raises Lazarus from the dead publicly. So all these people come back to all these 2.7 million folk and say, guess what? Jesus is in the suburbs. He just raised a guy from the dead. Come see. So all 2.7 million, 0.7 million. I'm not sure they did it like this, but, but they, they go to Bethany. Scripture says, and they start asking, are you Lazarus? Well, really? Were you dead? Were you dead? Was he really dead? And yeah, I mummified him. I'm telling you he was dead. Were you really? He was dead. Well, how did this? Jesus. And so they go back to town and they're saying, Jesus just rose a guy, raised a guy from the dead. Do you believe this? And so fever pitch is greater yet. Yes, he's the Messiah. These guys are, are hating him with, with, with a passion. And so there's just this, just this, this tension going on. Let me, let me read for you, because that's the only one I don't have on the screen. So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. This is what happens the next day. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now... What you need to know is this, this, the Pharisees were getting a little bit t- of tired of this Jesus deal. Okay, they tried to discredit him. They tried to frame him. They tried to, you know, they were getting, trying to take care of him in inappropriate ways. They, they set him up. They tried to bring uh, ethical dilemmas before him, knowing that he couldn't answer them properly and he would fall out of favor with the people. And they tried all kinds of stuff and none of it worked. Uh, but now they, they, they said, we're going to take it one step farther. Next text, it says, I'm sorry, did we back up one? Did I miss it? You can come on back one. I will get to it in a second. They want to arrest him, but they're going to say, let me give you a spoiler here, they're going to say, but let's not kill him during the feast. Okay, that's, that's, their, that's their hope. Now, there had been threats on Jesus' life up to this point, and Jesus has evaded them. Check out this, John 7.30. This is amazing. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Check this out. Why? Why? Because his hour had not yet come. This is why they didn't hurt him. Because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time. This, this is going to go on all over the place. John 8 says, At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. John 10 says, Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Let's look at Luke chapter 4. It says, they got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But, check this out, he walked right through the crowd 
and went on his way. It was almost like there was this aura around him. Nobody could get to him. He just walked on through, even though their goal was to, to dash him. They were, they were going to hurt him huge. But he, they, they, they couldn't. Up to this point, you know, they couldn't touch him because he said it's not time. Well, guess what? Now he's going to say it's time. Matthew 26. I think that's what we have next. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast. See, this is what I was saying. Or there may be a riot among the people. Not during the feast. We can't kill him. They were, they were okay to arrest him during the feast, but they weren't going to kill him during the feast. Be a bad situation. Let's wait till the people go home, and then we'll, then we'll take care of Jesus. But Jesus, uh, he, he, he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Now's the time. Now's the time. Now, when you, when you look at this, and you think of all this stuff, any sane person in Jesus' shoes, would say, you know what? It's time for me to stay away from Jerusalem. You know, I'm just going to let things calm down a little bit. I'm going to go do a healing thing up in Galilee. I'm going to go get on a cruise through the Mediterranean. I'm going to do something, but it's not the right time to go to Jerusalem. It's just too volatile. It's just going to be a big old mess. I'm not, not going there. I've got to let things calm down. Or if you got to go, you would sneak in through the back door at night, wearing a disguise. You know, my, my high school I grew up in, once in a while, not too terribly often, but I would have a bully after me for whatever reason. We don't need to go through all that. But I remember when I would have a bully after me, you know what? I would sneak in the back door. I would try to, to, to make sure I was in a place where they wouldn't see me. They wouldn't know me. You would think that's the way Jesus needs to deal with this. But what does he do? He, he, he organizes a parade, doesn't he? And where he's the guest of honor. Mill the day. Right down Main Street, you know, right in front of the Sanhedrin headquarters. And they're all in their headquarters saying, okay, we've got to find some sly way to get him. We know he's tricky. He's probably not here. He's afraid of us. But just, hey, what's that noise? Would someone go tell those people to shut up for a second? All right, let's get him out. He's, got, he's hiding, I'm sure, if he's in town. And, and all of a sudden, he comes right in front of their headquarters on a donkey. And they look out the window, and there's Jesus kind of waving to the people. And he waves to them in the window. You know, they're... Jesus, Jesus. And you say, well, what is he doing? Well, Jesus, are you crazy? Do you know what's going to happen here? Up to this point, again, Jesus had evaded uh, uh, people knowing his identity, right? Remember, the, the demons that knew who he was would start to shout it out, and he would rebuke them, wouldn't let them do it. People that he would heal, he'd pull aside and say, don't tell anybody about this, right? He would, you don't make any noise. Don't tell anybody who I am. And here he's saying, it's time. It's time. And so you've got all these, 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 these people lauding Jesus. Now here's the, here's the, here's the lesson I think that I, I, I get out of this. And it's been good for me even this week. That, that Jesus is in control even when it seems he's not. Jesus is in control. Now, the, the Sanhedrin thinks they're in control. And with all of their money, and with all their power, and all their influence, and all their, they know the right people. You know what I'm saying? They are connected. They have got the authority. They're there. It looks like they're in control. They're not in control. Because they said, not during the feast. And Jesus says, oh yeah. During the, the reason why is because in just a couple of days it was going to be the Passover and Jesus knew he had to die on the he had to die during the feast he had to die on Passover that very day 
Remember our, our Old Testament the stuff, the Passover, we've talked about that the last few weeks, where the ninth plague had, had come, tenth plague was coming, and they killed the lamb, and they put the blood on the door, remember, so that the angel of death would pass over them, and they could all get out of Egypt. That wasn't just, it's not just a, a simile to, to Jesus. This was, this was a type. In, in other words, this was intentionally there in order to point us to Christ. It's just not very coincidental that he happened to die on Passover. No, no, that was the plan. So that for his people, they could tie the two events just as they were redeemed from Egypt. So they would be redeemed in a much greater, greater scope. Uh, I don't know all what's going on in your your life, of course. But I do know some things like rebellious kids, apathetic spouse, uh, mean, unjust boss, godless peers. It looks sometimes like they're in control, doesn't it? You check out the media, the loudest, most obnoxious, whatever else, mean, evil. Those folk, it seems like they're in control and everyone's conniving and trying to fight each other and it, it, it looks like the powers that be. But you need to know, based on the word of God, Jesus is in control. I don't know how that looks in your life, but it's so comforting to me because I'm going through stuff too. To come to a point you realize, Lord, this is true or it's not, you're in control even though it looks like things are chaotic. Jesus is in control. And I don't doubt for some of y'all that's what you needed to hear this morning. It's a biblical truth. It's just an issue of now accepting that. You also look at this this text. It's fascinating. The people, the crowds. Because verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, Hosanna! A nice, a nice word. We think that by this time in history, it had deteriorated to, you know, Hooray! Let me ask you, do you know the etymology of hooray? Do you know what hooray really means? You know, nobody knows what hooray really means. I was all over the internet trying to figure this out. And it's like, well, it could be and it could be. No one knows. It just is, you know, uh, interjection. It's just like, yay, celebration. It's a good thing. Perhaps Jesus is coming into town and these people are, are saying hooray. But they're saying really the word is hosanna. Now we know what the etymology of Hosanna is. It means, God save us. Now, do you see the irony here? These people, and regardless of what the videos show, like 50 people maybe, there were thousands. Keep in mind that the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin just said, see, the whole world has gone after him. Do you think they would say this if there was 25 people there, if there were 50 people there? Do you think they would really care there's 2.7 million people in Jerusalem and there's 25 people who are excited about Jesus. You think they would really even care? They've got a police force that could squash that in a second. Uh, they wouldn't have to worry about a riot for 25 people. The whole world is going to... Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. As Jesus is coming in, up to this point, he said, don't tell anyone who I am. As he's coming into town, hundreds of thousands into Jerusalem are saying, save us now, save us now, save us now. And that's exactly why he was coming. Now, if they did know what the word meant, you can be sure that they weren't thinking about personal sins or corporate sins. You know, sins? Are you serious? Sin's not the issue. Sin, just forget the sin thing. Jesus will be better tomorrow. No, no, no. Rome is the issue. 
Because keeping in mind that Rome kept these guys very, very poor by extracting tax after tax after tax after tax. And so they're just trying to get ahead and then more taxes and more taxes. So then guess what Rome did with the money? They paid guards to come in. And when the guards came in, they weren't real nice to these conquered people. They mocked their god. Uh, That was the uh, lightest thing because they also abused the girls. They used their sons for uh, target practice. They they were not, the Roman guards were not nice to the Jewish people. And the Jewish folk were funding this. And so there was an incredible hate. The problem here, Jesus, is not my sin, thank you. And it's not my heart, and it's not our sin. It's Rome, fix Rome. That was, that was the deal. You need to fix Rome. And they have the palm trees, palm leaves, right? They weren't waving palm trees, but palm leaves, right? Palm was a nationalistic symbol. No, don't miss this because this is, if I would have, no one told me this when I had my little thing going when I was a little boy. It's a nationalistic symbol. It is, the palm to Rome is what a white KKK hood is to a black American. It, is, it, was, it, was, it was a sign of hate. It was a sign of, if we could get you Rome, if we had the power, this is what we would do to you. It was a sign of, 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 of utter disdain. 150 years before Jesus' time, uh, the Syrians had taken over Jerusalem. A guy by the name of Simon Maccabeus and his zealot friends, they drove him out. And when Simon came back, guess what they did? You could read the same passage. 150 years earlier, they had palm trees going, uh, palm leaves going down. They were, they were uh, saying some of the same sort of stuff. It was, a, it was a nationalistic emblem. They did not think the issue was my, it was Rome. It was Rome. Here's the second lesson I think we get out of this. And that, that is that, that Jesus is, is working even when I'm unaware. Remember, this is what I mean by that. The people thought they knew what the problem was, Right? A problem is my Rome. And Jesus, you got to fix the Rome thing because the Rome thing is the, it's what's making my life not happy and it's what's messing up my whole life. It's that Rome thing. Jesus, you got to fix the Rome thing. All of my prayer, all my everything, it's fix the Rome thing, it's fix the Rome thing. That's the issue. But Jesus is saying, no, no, I didn't come to write your Romes. The issue is, is not, I'm, I'm not concerned with, with how healthy you are but how holy you are, with how, how happy you are but with how Holy you are. The issue is your heart. And even if you don't understand it, which they didn't, and, and even if, if you're not on my agenda, which they weren't, he says, you know what? I'm still going to work. I'm still there. Your plans or lack thereof or misunderstood plans will not derail mine. Jesus is working in your life. And your plans and your thinking, you understand it, cannot derail it. Now, here's the deal, though, because he's not going to force himself on anybody. Will you lay down the palms and accept that? Because he came as king. This, you know, isn't it crazy? You can have folk who are so close together physically, whether it's spouses or families or, or friends or people at work. They're so close together physically, but internally, emotionally, uh, spiritually, mentally, they are worlds apart these folk are screaming save us now and and and, and, and they're, they're they're recognizing him as you're my messiah and jesus is saying i am your messiah but not how you're thinking they're they're thinking jesus was the son of david and when you're 
this book reading, if you get into the David stories, you realize David was a machine, man. I mean, he was a war machine. No one stopped David. David just took on any, and anyone he took on, he took out. And they're either going to be completely out of the picture or they're going to be his servants and he just, just ate them all up. And they're thinking, well, this Messiah is son of David. He's going to do the same thing. And so he's our Messiah. He's going, be, he's going to establish a political kingdom for us. And Jesus is saying, I'm your Messiah. But I'm going to establish a, a kingdom of peace for you. you know, so, so Jesus knows all this, these, these thoughts that the people, they're, they're saying the right things, but their heart isn't right. They don't understand. So he comes in on, on a donkey. Now, now, the donkey thing. Last, I, as best I can tell, last time Jesus rode a donkey, he was in Mary's womb. He has not, he doesn't ride. He, he, he walked everywhere he went. He didn't, don't, so don't think that he got tired, he needed to walk, his feet were hurting, he needed to get a donkey. No, no. He knows that the people know that Zechariah 9 9, which is Old Testament stuff, says that when the Messiah comes, he presents himself to you, he will be gentle and riding on a donkey. So when they're seeing him, they're already thinking he's the Messiah. When he's coming in on a donkey, he's saying, yes, I am. They're really going crazy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, 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 didn't, they stopped too soon. You recognize that you don't ride into war on a donkey, right? It says, can you imagine the Lone Ranger? The guys in the street are, and here comes Lone Ranger around thing on a baby donkey. You know, hi, oh, Sylvester. You're going, oh, geez. It's just not impressive. It's like, oh, this guy's a clown. It's done. Jesus was saying, I didn't come for war. I know you're thinking that, but that's not the way it's going to be. I've come for peace. Jesus is working in your life, in my life, for our sanctification. If we would just let him, instead of fight him, we would accept him as the king that he wants to be. Third thing is you look in the the text real quick. And we're going to look actually to Luke. Uh, chapter uh, 19 on this one. This is Luke's version, part of Luke's version on the triumphal entry. It says, when he came near the place, and notice, this is what Luke throws in here, is very fascinating. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. That word for wept means, um, it means to bawl. I mean, it means to fall apart emotionally. It, it, it is a major heaving. Jesus is really falling apart emotionally when he looks at Jerusalem. And you know, if you just look at the picture, you think, what is going on? This is crazy. All the people are cheering him. Hundreds of thousands of people are cheering him. I mean, this is his day. It's working. He comes as the king and they're saying, yes, you're our king. They're, they're saying messianic terms for him. This is it. And so why is he crying? Well, maybe he's crying because he knows he's going to have to die in a couple of days. That's pretty intense. Or maybe he's crying because he's just so happy. You know, if you're missing a child and you're looking all over for him and you're getting really panicky and all of a sudden you find the child, you're so relieved you start crying just before you spank the tire of the kid. Right? But you're just so, you think, okay, maybe Jesus is, is happy tears. But no, 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 these are not happy tears. He's looking at Jerusalem, capital of Judaism, right? Religious headquarters. He says, if you, Jerusalem, even you, 
had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you only knew what would bring you peace. That's our problem. So often we just don't know. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What's so ironic about this, chapter 11, we don't have time to look at it. But the Sanhedrin, when they get together, they say, this Jesus guy... If we accept him as our Messiah, you know what's going to happen, don't you? I mean, Rome is going to send more people through. They're going to, they say, in John 11, the Sanhedrin says, we will lose our temple if we accept Jesus as our king. Here, Jesus is saying, you're going to lose your temple, but you're going to lose it because you didn't accept me as your king. He's prophesying, 70 AD, Titus, Roman general, comes through Jerusalem. And levels the temple. It hasn't been rebuilt since. Levels it. Totally destroys it. And Jesus is saying, there are substantial consequences when you reject me. Now this is, we think, like the Sanhedrin, so often, that if I follow Jesus, if I accept him as my king, you know what? I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose on fun and popularity and, and, and comfort. And I'm going to lose. And Jesus is saying, if you don't accept me as king, you will lose. All of those things that were so important to you, that you needed before me, I promise you, you will lose. You won't gain them. So for us, well, here's the lesson. Jesus is crying while we're praising. Isn't this interesting? That you can be praising Jesus... And have him cry at the same time because he knows you really don't have a clue. You, you want him to be your Messiah that's going to fix everything for you. And we would never say this because it's not politically correct, of course, especially in church. But frankly, Jesus, if you're not going to fix all these things that I think are wrong in my life, I really don't have time for you. You know, crucify, not Hosanna. Hosannas are very few. If life isn't going the way I want it to go, you know, forget the Hosanna thing. That's it. Crucified, maybe. Maybe that's the way we, we, we need to go. Jesus Christ, when a guy will come here to church and praise, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He'll be singing, be praising, but uh, the rest of the week, you know what? His sexual ethic is nowhere near Jesus. He doesn't even care. He's not even thinking about obedience here. He's going to do whatever he wants to do, but in church, he's praising. Jesus is crying. Jesus cries when the businessman or woman comes to church and they praise on Sunday morning, they sing, they're praising Sunday morning. But you know what? The rest of the week, they have negotiated with truth and with ethics and with kindness such a substantial way in order to get ahead. Jesus is crying because they don't understand. Jesus is crying when the person will come to church on Sunday and you know what? They're going to praise and they're going to sing and they're going to praise and feel it and it's a good thing. But the rest of the week, you know what? They are preoccupied with the new living room suit and the vacation and that doctor thing and uh, my, my ring. And, and, and Jesus is crying. And I wonder, uh, for me, when I'm praising today, if Jesus looked into my heart and he saw... All the stuff, all the anxiety, all the priorities, all the other, everything that I'm about. And then he heard me sing. I wonder, is he crying? How about you? If you looked into your heart today. Now, 
don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about perfection or, or we're not going to fail because we're going to trip and fail. It's a whole different deal than just being on a different page that he's on. Jesus uh, has come to present himself as a king. And quite often we want him as a different type of king. We want him, but a whole different agenda. As we enter into this holy week, let me encourage you strongly to come back on Friday, our good Friday service. Please, please don't just pop this thing on your schedule or come because it's supposed to, because it's the thing good Christian people do and all that stuff. If that's really your heart, then, then don't come. Plan on not coming, but do this. Plan on praying between now and then. And ask, Lord, if you want me to go, would you change my heart? And I think he, he will as we focus on that uh, gift that he had for us.